0: We should have got him once for sure, and it was nobody's fault at all. We have nobody to blame, and uh, we just didn't get it done, and that, hey, that's the difference between winning and losing. I mean, you get to that big dance, you got to win it.
1: This is Christopher Mad Dog Russo's Digging Up the Past, an historical podcast taking a deep dive into the 10 greatest Major League Baseball teams to never win the World Series. Welcome, folks,
2: Digging Up the Past. Christopher Russo here as we give you the summer edition of our 2021 podcast series. Subject matter of this one, the 10 great baseball teams that never won a World Series. Now, the 10 that we choose as a little committee, we have a caveat The core of the team cannot have won a title. For example, you could have put any Braves team you wanted in here in the 90s, but they won a championship in 95, so that takes care of them. Matter of fact, they had four teams that won over 100 games that did not win it in that particular year. But, of course, they beat the Indians there in 95, so we can't count that group. Our focus for this episode is the 91 Pirates, three years in a row postseason. We thought this was the best one, the 90, 91, 92 Pirates, all excellent We thought this would be the best one here, the middle team of the three. They averaged the three teams over 96 wins a year. That's pretty darn good. They won three divisional titles, but they lost in the NLCS all three years and in two of them in crushing game sevens, one at home and one on the road. Jim Leland was the skipper of this ball club, and this team had a big offense, the best in the league, Barry Bonds, of course, on this team long before Barry ended up with San Francisco and the controversy that he created with steroids with the Giants. He's a young star in the early 90s. He's only 26 years of age in 91. He's only 26, but already arguably the best player in baseball. He won the MVP in 90 and 92, was second to the Braves, Terry Pendleton In 91, in fact, Bobby Bonilla, another big star on his team, finished third in the MVP ballot in 91, showing you a pair of great teammates splitting the vote and allowing someone else to take this award. We saw similar results when Yogi Berra won with the Yankees in 54 instead of anybody on an Indians team that won 111 games. Of all the teams on our list, the Pirates team might have been the most tumultuous. Plenty of controversy throughout the year, dating all the way back to spring training, in the NLCS the previous year against Cincinnati, third baseman Jeff King was, you know had a bad back, an injury that would plague him throughout the course of the 91 season two. And Bonds criticized him for not playing through the pain. But when Bonds was pressed about it in spring training, he blamed the media, what else is new, for twisting his words.
3: Jeff King was our best. And, you know, in a situation like that, you want your best, you know. And that's just all I meant by it. It wasn't nothing personal. And me and Jeff King talked about it. And I said, they just messed it all up. And that's it. You know, they just went out of whack with it.
2: Eternal strife always contracts and it plagued the Pirates. Multiple players were free agents or soon to be, including Bobby Bonilla, a pending one in 91. Bonds was going to be a pending one in 92. Both wanted, of course, big paydays. It's a small market. The problem is at the start of the season, the Pirates could have gone a couple different ways but they locked down center fielder Andy Van Slyke with a contract extension. They gave him an additional three years and made him the highest paid pirate, all right? So there you go with Van Slyke. You know that's gonna bother Benia, but as Jim Leland told the media at the time, it's not like Benia didn't have an offer of his own.
0: Truth of the matter is, you know, I stay away from that stuff, but Bobby was offered more. So I don't really think too much about that. I mean, the fact is, uh, to my knowledge, uh, the front office, you know, offered Bobby uh, a bigger contract.
2: So Benia can't moan and grown if he gets that kind of offer. He told his side of his story on those contract negotiations. You know, I always thought I was going to work out a deal uh, with the
3: Pirates because I was always told the green, the grass isn't always greener on the other side. And uh, I knew that going in. But I just couldn't get on the same page. I mean, obviously, we were a small market, and at those times, you know, the emphasis on small markets was they couldn't really keep anybody. I don't. I didn't think that was true. You know, I wanted to stay, but if I was going to go anywhere, it was going to be to playing in front of my dad and, and, and to go home. That took place. It happened. But did I want to go? No, I'm not going to say I, I wanted to go, but we just couldn't come to a... Uh, an agreement. They didn't want to, I believe they didn't want to give me the the deal that Will Clark received in San Francisco, I believe a year before that.
2: The New York native Benia, he sees his wish fulfilled. He signs a lucrative deal with the Mets after the 91 season. More on that a little later on. The Will Clark contract that uh, he referenced, by the way, was a four-year deal with the Giants, which totaled $15 million. Seems like peanuts today, but contract's in those days, that's a heck of a deal for Will. He was the first player in baseball history, by the way, to make $4 million in a season. And ironically enough, he would be Barry Bonds' future teammate there in 93. So Clark's contract is one of the most lucrative in the entire sport. Need to keep that in mind. The media, you know what the media is going to do? They're going to talk about these contract squabbles. It makes good print, good copy, and internal arguments that the Pirates had throughout that season. But if they asked Bonds, he said everything was just peachy in that clubhouse.
1: We can fool
3: you guys a thousand and one times, you know, just like we just did in the paper. You guys can write whatever you want. But, you know, the thing is, when we read it, we laugh because we all you guys do is prove us right. That's just what it comes down to. We sit back here and laugh and and we're proven right.
2: Now, Bonds is wrong. And I'll give you a little story. Personally, this is the year before I was in Pittsburgh to see the Giants play the Pirates. And I had lunch with. Rick Cerrone, he was then the Pirate Public Relations Director, and Rick took me back to the Pirate Clubhouse after we had lunch on top of that hill there in Pittsburgh, and what happens? He gets into a huge fight with Bonds, who's screaming and yelling in that clubhouse about something that you wouldn't believe. So, there was always something going on in that uh, clubhouse there with the Pirates at Three Rivers. But despite all these distractions, the Pirates, that's a good team, and they're focused on getting back into that postseason, and as Andy Van Slyke tells us, that was exactly their mentality
4: for the year. People forget when, you know, when you had divisional play back then, there was a lot more pride in winning your division than there is today. With, you know, with the balance schedule, you really set the course coming out of spring training. What do we have to do to win our division? If we can win our division, we are going to be in contention for a World Series. I don't necessarily think ball clubs come out of spring training today's game thinking, hey, all we have to do is win a wild card position. We don't have to be the best team in our division, and we got a chance to get in the World Series. That was never the mindset like it was 25 or 30 years ago before the wild card. So the fact that we dominated our division, I think, really set us on a course that we thought we were going to get in the World Series.
2: Get off to good starts. That's what you want to do. Put yourself in best position early. You can't win a pennant in April, but you can lose one. And the Pirates didn't want to do that. In the month of April, Bonilla says that was their focus as the year got underway. Our only, really, our
3: goal was just to get off to a good start so we didn't have to work quite as hard throughout the year. And I, and I say that, you know, kind of lovingly. Obviously, you want to play well on year, But a lot of our focus was to really jump out and get, get out in front and lead from in front. This way, we could weather some losing streaks if we had to. But I thought Leland did a great job of just keeping us all focused. You know, we played extremely hard for him because he was always very good to us. To me, Bondsman, Slyke, LaVallier, you know, Lean, you know, Bell, all these guys, King. Uh, he was always very good to us. Cause, and we just wanted to go through a wall for him. Again, we had to get off to a good start and we were able to do that.
2: Good start for the Pirates. Took a couple of weeks to get guard. Believe it or not, they were 500 for the first 10 games of the season when they kicked off a four-game series against the Cubs at Three Rivers in Pittsburgh. Cubs, they win the opening game and the Pirates win the next two but the fourth game is magic and maybe this had a lot to do with the Pirates exploding and running away in the NL East here in 91. What happened in this fourth game, something special. Cubs had a 7-2 lead going into the bottom of the eighth. Pirates score 48th and they tie it in the ninth to force extras. The wheels fell off of the Pirates top of the 11th when the Cubs' Andre Dawson came up to the plate with the bases juiced. The legendary Harry Carey on the call. There's a long drive. I don't think anybody can get this one. And it is out of
5: here. Holy cow. Dawson hits another grand slam. His second of the
2: series. Cubs with the Dawson granny. 12 7 lead going in the bottom half, the 11th thing. You figure the game's over. Good comeback by the Pirates for not. Not the case. That's when we saw just how explosive and resilient this pirate offense could be. They quickly load the bases from no outs. Jay Bell a two-run double. Van Slyke a sack fly, 12-10. Vanilla walks. Bonds follows that up with an RBI single. So two batters later, backup catcher, Dons Flawed. Steps to the plate. 1-1 one, one pitch. Slot with a fly ball to center field. Going back is Walton and the ball
3: is over his head. Bonilla scores. Here comes Bonds. He is being
2: waved in as Walton holds on to the ball. The Pirates have done it. A 5-1 11th inning comeback. They were down 7-2 in the 8th. And they were down uh, 12-7 at the bottom of the 11th. The greatest extra inning comeback in the history of the sport. Think about that. And after that series, Pittsburgh finds themselves in first place a position they held for the rest of the year. It's amazing how one win sometimes can provide a lot of momentum. Pirates were a model of consistency throughout the season. They won 15-plus games every month throughout the summer, building their lead over the rest of the division from a one-game lead at the end of April to a 14-game bulge by the season's end. But mentioned how they wanted to have a strong start to the year, and in the end, they had a strong season. And on September 22nd, with two full weeks remaining in the regular year, Pirates hosted their in-state rivals, the Phillies, with a chance to wrap up the NL East. And they did just that, as we hear from the legendary Philly broadcaster, the late, great Harry Callis. Struck
5: him out, and the Pittsburgh Pirates are the National League Eastern Division champions for the second year in a row. The Buccos have clinched a 2-1 game here at Pittsburgh and the gutty pitching of last year's Cy Young Award winner Doug Grayback.
2: With 12 games left and two weeks on a calendar, the Pirates could rest their feet and take it easy into the postseason. Believe it or not, though, that always doesn't work. Sometimes it's a plus, sometimes it's a minus. In this particular situation, additional rest was not necessarily a benefit.
4: The fact that we had such a big lead, it's in some ways it's a luxury. Andy Van Slyke Explains. You get to rest your guys, you get ready, but they're not physically and mentally ready like they would if they had to win every game. So I think there's, there's an advantage and a disadvantage, but I think actually the disadvantage of not being in a pennant race up to the last couple of days of the season can really hurt a club mentally. And I think I don't think mentally we were at our peak intensity when we went into against the Braves.
2: All right, in 90, the Pirates faced the Reds, lost in six. First time in, 91, the more experienced. They got Atlanta. The Braves, uh, who finished in last place in 90 in the NL West, they won the division in 91. In this season, as it was throughout this entire decade for Atlanta, their pitching is just, it's a difference maker. I mean, they got too many good pitchers, as Benia explains.
3: They had three very good starters in Avery, Glavin. They had Smoltz, and they were just coming into their own. And people forget about Avery, how good Avery was. I mean, he pretty much single-handedly was probably responsible for our demise, if you want to use that word, in, in 91.
2: Because he pretty much, I think he beat us twice. Yes, he did. Which was hard to do. The best of seven NLCS kicks off on October 9th on a beautiful night in Pittsburgh. Pirates take game one. Great performance, dominant from their ace, Doug Drebeck And offensively, they get a big boost from a first-inning home run by Van Slyke. The Braves bounce back in game two. Brilliant performance from Steve Avery. We'll hear from him again. He beats the Pirates 1-0 as the series shifts to Atlanta for three games. The Braves cruise in Game 3. They take a 2-1 series lead. But then the Pirates show their resiliency in Game 4. The Braves put the Pirates in a tough spot early. Got a lead off the gate 2-0. But then Pittsburgh gets single runs in the second and fifth to tie the ball game up, which is where it would remain into the 10th inning. Pirate catcher Mike LeVarier gets a big base knock. He knocks in Van Slyke. Pirates win the game. They even the series at two games apiece. In pivotal game five, Pirates starter Zane Smith, brilliant. He defeats future Hall of Famer Tommy Glavin in a pitcher's duel. The Pirates are now just one win away from advancing to their first World Series in over a decade. There's plenty more ways to listen to Mad Dog Sports Radio than turning
1: to channel eighty-two. Miss any of the shows live? They are all available on the SiriusXM app. Great video content from Morning Man, Adam Shine, and the Doggy himself. Have a laugh with
5: Chick from the basement. Plus podcasts like Digging Up the Past and the Adam Shine Podcast.
1: And make sure to check out the Mad Dog Interviews and Highlights tabs for more great content.
2: It's all available on the SiriusXM app, free for most subscribers. So easy to use, even a dog can do it.
5: pleasant but cleaning. We're at Three Rivers Stadium in Pittsburgh for the sixth game of this playoff. Steve Avery is the starter tonight for Atlanta. Only 21 years old. Gary Rittus of the Pirates is ready. Autographs to be given. Barry Bonds is cold. Doug Drayback will start tonight for Pittsburgh. Trying to nail down the pennant. The press has gathered. Bobby Boney and David Justice talk it over. Jose Lean is playing golf. It's time for game six of the National League Championship
2: Series. And right, as was the case here in this entire series, the starting pitchers were just tremendous. When you get into these type of games, the big hit doesn't always come from that star player. You know, the Billy Martins of the world early 50s Yankees and on this night this is game six now it came from the Braves light hitting catcher Greg Olson he had all of 44 RBIs all year long and that's fair and
5: Atlanta finally scores and they take the lead here in the ninth inning on a double by Greg Olson a walk of stolen base and a double
2: one thing, Atlanta. Olsen provides that big hit, provides all the offense the Braves would need. Alejandro Pena does a great job in the ninth inning. Braves get even in his best-of-seven series. But our good pal MOB analyst Tom Verducci said the night really did belong. Forget Olsen, forget Pena. The night belonged to Steve Avery.
6: It's hard for me to believe that Steve Avery was just 21 years old going out there, pitching on the road in an elimination game. And my goodness, his future looked so bright, Chris. I mean, you, you saw this left-handed pitcher with real good velocity, late tilt not a breaking ball. Um, he just couldn't stay healthy. You know, he didn't have a real clean delivery. He wound up getting an oblique injury that kind of messed up his mechanics even more, but – I'll never forget that game because you you talk about a young kid rising to the moment. That was a big ask to go up against the top scoring team of the National League on the road. Pittsburgh's ready to celebrate one win away from advancing. uh, And Avery wins a one to nothing game. That was just so impressive. Van Slyke describes
2: what made Avery such a dominant in this period. Short era, got hurt later. But in this period, he was dominant. Van Slyke explains why.
4: He threw very hard. He was basically a two-pitch pitcher, fastball slider, and he was just peaking at the right time. And there's nothing worse than facing an athlete who's peaking at the right time, especially in postseason, and a guy who can throw, you know, I mean, in today's gun, he'd be throwing between 95 and 100. I mean, let's face it. The Jug's gun is not the same as the radar gun. And he would have picked up probably between three and five miles an hour fastball in today's game. So, you know, a guy that throws that hard, throws a slider, didn't walk people. You know, it just, you can be a two-pitch pitcher at the big league level if you have two dominant pitches, and he can really controlled both those pitches and just carved us up.
2: For Pittsburgh, Jay Beck, 110 pitches through eight, but Jim Leland decided to stick with his ace for that ninth inning. A mistake? According to Van Slyke, Jimmy didn't have a choice.
4: One of the things that I think people forget is, when you have a legitimate closer, and I'm not, you know, I'm not blasting Stan Belinda not being a legitimate closer, but you know, if you if you got that that Rivera type of closer in your bullpen, I think what it really does, Chris, is it frees you up offensively. Also, you don't think that you have to go out, you know, and score ten runs to win a ball game. I think that's what we felt like we had to do because we were never quite confident at the very end of the ball game. So the fact that he was still in there, I think. Says a lot about our bullpen.
2: Braves get the job done. Game seven. Here we go now for the pennant at three rivers, forty-seven thousand for this seventh game. And the Pirates send John Smalley to the hill. Coming off a career year for him. He led the National League with 20 wins. Braves, another round of their future Hall of Famers. This time it's John Smoltz.
4: Every
2: remember this is a Brave team before Maddox. This is the Smoltz Avery Lavin Braves. Maddox came later when Avery fell off. Smotes is on the mound here. In this seventh game, and throughout his career, we all know how good Smoltz was in these big spots—a tremendous big-game pitcher. And it was in these 91 playoffs where he started to earn his reputation. Smoltz was big in a big spot, and Smiley, of course, helped him out. He got in trouble right out of the gate, top of the first inning, and the Braves had Brian Hunter at the plate. Two out, into the corner, and is it going to stay fair?
5: It is a home run, and it's three to nothing. Three in the first for Atlanta.
2: And look at that Pirate bench. Hunter's homer in this spot, 3-0 Atlanta. Boy, that's a dagger in the first inning of a Game 7 after he came back and won Game 6 in the ninth. That's brutal. And according to Van Slyke, that combined with that Olsen hit in the ninth inning in Game 6, the night before, maybe just a little too much for the Pirates to overcome.
4: You know, it was like getting—it was like getting a sucker punch in the stomach, and then getting a left hook you know, to the chin. I mean, it happened so quickly that I think a lot of guys were just in shock that you know, this is not what this is not how we we're, we were going to draw it up. You know, we we were going to figure out a way to at least win one ball game, get ahead, and uh, and, and and depend on our pitching and our defense to to, to hold on. And it, again, the, I think the, I think the biggest blow of the whole series <coughs> was Hunter's. Uh, first inning home run that uh, really, I think, set us back in our seats, and we never got got off our fanny. Oh and 2 to the batter. And to the first baseman, it,
5: And that's it for Atlanta. They won last night. They won this evening. And John Smoltz has pitched Atlanta
2: into the World Series. For a team that relies on their offense all season long, the Pirates were shut out. Think about this now. Back-to-back games at home to lose the pennant. Back-to-back games shut out by, obviously, Avery and then Smoltz, a couple of big hits. That's a brutal way to go. Bobby Benitez says the offense just put too much pressure on themselves in that game seven. Those chances in the playoffs are, you know, you, you got to capitalize on them,
3: Chris, and we just weren't able to do it. And I and I, we were confident because we had John Smiley, I believe, against Smoltz. After having a tough evening the night before, not scoring a run, and then we gave up three in the first inning, now yep. we're pressing a little bit in game seven to try to make something happen. And, and when, you try to, when you try to do too much in the postseason, it kind of gets magnified and nothing happens. We were very comfortable with our guys giving up runs. We just had a tough night the night before where we didn't score anything. And Now, most of the time, our guy could have given up three or four. We would have been, okay, we got you. But usually we didn't have a tough, night, <laughs> a, 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 a tough night before that and then followed with, you know, what happened in game seven. So, you know, I tip my hat to them for doing what they did, but the, the, they got the big hits when they needed them. We just couldn't come up with it.
2: This is the era now where Bonds began to develop that reputation where he could not get big hits in big spots. The 90, he wasn't great against Cincinnati, and obviously not great here. Lack of production from Barry Bonds.
6: In real time, when we watched it, we saw that Bonds couldn't perform well in the postseason. Let's go back
2: to Tom Berducci.
6: You know, I mentioned he hit 148 in that series, and they pitched to him. I mean, we think about Bonds, nobody pitched to him, right? He only had two walks in that series. So the Braves staff went at him, and they got him out. No RBIs in the seven-game series. I mean, they they shut him down. Bonds drove in 116 that year. When he's
2: that important and does virtually nothing, you got major problems. That's very difficult to bounce back from. And not just this series. Remember, these three series, Bonds struggled. In 20 games, that includes the next year against Atlanta, which they also lost in seven. Barry, one homer, three RBIs, and hit 191. Wow, that's tough. But Benia says... Not just Bonds. You know, he's the linchpin, but Bobby thought the whole offense fell apart.
3: We were all young. So, and everybody wants to do well in these postseason. Everybody wants to, because this is things you, you think about when you're a kid, you know, coming through in playoff games and in World Series. And everybody wants to do it. And BB was no exception to that. I mean, he actually, playing in San Francisco, he did much better in the playoffs, but we were all pretty young. And, um, uh, we just, we couldn't calm our nerves enough because we didn't just have the experience.
2: Van Slyke's always got something to say. You know, he questioned the mindset of this young Barry Bonds as to why the future home run King could not handle the postseason pressure.
4: pleasure. I think he, if he was really honest with himself, some of the comments he made in the locker room and around the guys, it was, uh, it was really interesting. I, You know, mentally, Barry Bonds really matured, and I think in ways that people could really not understand that mentally he was such a better ball player the second half of his career than he was his first half. He really relied on all his talent in the beginning of his career, which was basically in Pittsburgh, the second half in San Francisco, and that's why he got so much better. Now, you can talk about all the physical changes that went through, but mentally, if he was... Where he was in the second half and put that brain when he was in Pittsburgh, I think he would have been a dominant, dominant postseason player.
2: For Benia, final game for the Pirates. Free agency for him. He signs with the Mets, which turned out to be a complete mess and a disaster. A move that really didn't work out for anybody, Benia included. But speaking with Benia here, no regrets for Bobby. Here's what he had to say.
3: I started to think about a lot of things. There was a lot of unknown. Uh, We were forced kind of to, to hit the market, you know, because I couldn't come to an agreement with the uh, Pirates. And uh, I believe it was Philly, the Mets, and uh, the Angels uh, that were in that, that that running. And I was close to signing with the Angels. They were probably a million dollars away from me not even meeting with the Mets. And then that, that didn't take place. They were all generous offers, uh, Chris. But more than anything, it was going to be to play in front of my father in New York. Even though it was kind of a tumultuous time for me in, in New York, there was nothing better than me looking back when I was in the batter's box and winking at my father and then going out and play. So even all the stuff that took place in New York, there was a lot of positives that happened for me there being able to play in front of my dad.
2: When we return, we sit down with Pirate skipper Jim Leland to look back on the ups and downs of this memorable 1991 Pirate season.
1: It's Mad Dog Unleashed with Christopher Mad Dog Russo. Hear the passion. Be aggressive. Get something done. Hear the knowledge. The game,
2: folks, is about two plays, and that's what it comes down to. Hear the personality. I'm going to start here in an angry mood. Get
1: somebody on the radio. That has made him a sports talk legend. Does that make any sense to you? Dodger you're crazy. It's Mad Dog Unleashed with Christopher Russo. Weekdays, 3 p.m. Eastern on Mad Dog Sports Radio, channel 82, or anytime on the Sirius XM app. Free for most subscribers.
2: I had a chance to sit down with Pirate skipper Jim Leland to talk about this 91 year. Listen, you know, Leland was a great manager. He had a lot of brutal losses. He did win a ring a little later on with the Marlins, but this is the one he wanted to win. You know, he's from that part of the country. He really wished he could have won one for the city of Pittsburgh. Really does. Here's the conversation. I picked the middle team as your best one only because you had Benier on that team. You also won 98 games. Maybe the team that that lost the Reds, maybe a little better. Who knows? Maybe even the following year when you lost the, this game seven in Atlanta. But I thought the 91 team was your best out of the three. Do I have that red right or not? Let me hear.
0: Yeah, I think that's right. I think 91 was probably the best. I don't think there's any question it was probably the best team.
2: Uh, you had a, a good balance, Jim, and plus you had the year before. Give me your thoughts. Uh, on why you, like you had a good you had good offense, you had obviously Van Slyke, Bonds, and uh, Benier right in the middle of the lineup. You had Drabeck, Zane Smith, Smith. and you had a lot of the team. I mean, you had a lot going for you, a lot of diversity. Give me a little rundown. Give me a little feel of that particular team compared to the other two. What What'd you really like about this particular team? Let me hear.
0: Well, I think we you know, started in 1990, and we got pretty good. It took us a long time to catch the Mets. They were kind of the power of the division for quite a while. We finally caught up with them in 90, and we won the division. <clears throat> and I think that was kind of a, it was a culture thing. I think for the first time we went in there in 90, we ended up getting beat. Cincinnati ended up winning the World Series. But in 91, I thought we really, we really came alive and we really had a team that I thought was very capable of winning it. But at the end of the day, you know, and I, I've thought about that many times. But at the end of the day, we just, we came home with a 3-2 lead and uh, we just ran into a buzzsaw. We, went in, we ran into Avery who pitched, One of the greatest baseball games I've ever seen pitched. It had to be it happened to be against us in game six. And then, of course, we run into, in my opinion, the best big game pitcher of all time in John Smoltz. So, you know, we just ran into a buzzsaw at the end. They just shut us down.
2: Well, let's not jump ahead too much because I want to give that regular season some love. And you listen, uh, you beat the Mets in late April. You had sole possession of first place. You never relinquished it. You're out two and a half games early, and then by May first, you're in first, and that's the way it goes the rest of the year. You won nine in a row in May. Uh They had a couple of uh, that losing streak, and you bounce back and you clinch on October sixth, fourteen games ahead. For crying out loud, you basically Jimmy yeah. in '91 went. You basically Jimmy in '91 went wire to wire with that ball club in the NL East. <clears throat> Thoughts there? Go no ahead. Qu-
0: no, no question about it. We, we we were just very consistent. We never never got down and when we did run into a little funk we bounced back like all good teams you know you you cut the losing streaks to a minimum and then you run a pretty good streak together eight nine in a row we did that uh you know it was just a fun team it was a, just an outstanding outstanding baseball team one, one of the best i ever managed obviously and it was unfortunate but like i said at the end of the day the old adage about good pitching stops hitting well that's that's what we ran into
2: yeah, we'll get to that postseason in a sec. Did you love your staff? Were you, a better, were you more of an offensive team, Jim, than the pitching staff? I mean, you had Draybeck, Smith, and Smiley. And then, of course, you had that great middle of the lineup. I'm assuming a better offensive team than pitching team. Is that correct?
0: Yeah, I think so. I think I, I never thought in Pittsburgh, we never really had a really dominant, dominant pitching staff. Uh, we had Draybeck. And uh, we had Smiley, obviously. We had guys like Bob Walker, good pitcher. Zane Smith, good pitcher. He was a Met killer. So we had the right pieces, but I I don't think we really ever had, you know, a dominant, dominant pitching staff in Pittsburgh. Uh,
2: Was there a sense uh, once the season started of unfinished business after losing to the Reds the year before?
0: Yeah, I think so. I think that – I think we – you know, like I said, I think in 1990, we realized we worked real hard to get there. We, we worked really hard to catch up with the best because they were a powerhouse in 86. I mean, they were loaded. And we worked very hard to catch up with them. I think that, you know, all of a sudden we had a confidence boost that, you know, we felt would take us to the next level. And it did. We just didn't quite complete the deal. But, yeah, I don't think there was any question. That was a very confident team. It was a good team. It was a very consistent team. You know, just a lot of nice pieces and a lot of different ways to beat people. And that's basically what we did during the course of the season.
2: I know when Bonds got to the Giants in 93, Dusty hit him fifth behind Williams and Clark. I don't remember. Did you hit him fifth behind Van Slyke and Bonilla, or did he hit cleanup? I don't remember that. Go ahead.
0: I believe, I believe he hit cleanup. I think uh, Andy hit third. Uh, Jay Bell hit second. But, uh, yeah, Bonds hit fourth, and, uh, and Bonilla was behind him. We might have switched but, it from time to time too where Bobby hit fourth once in a while and Bonds hit fifth. But I believe Bonds hit fourth most of the time.
2: I think maybe didn't you lead off with Orlando Merced a good part of the year, Jimmy, if I'm not mistaken. He was a good on base yeah. guy, Merced. Did-
0: yeah, he was. He was one he was one of the guys that he did lead off some. We also had Jeff King in that lineup who was a good player and a good hitter. So you know, we we had a lot of depth to our lineup. It it extended out pretty good. And Chico Lin was actually a very, very good eighth hitter. Uh you know, he'd take a walk, and he could, he could uh, get that base hit with two outs in an inning where you got the pitcher out of the way, you know, by him getting a base hit. He came up with some big, big hits for us. And like I said, it was, a, it, was a, it was a thorough lineup, really, from top to bottom.
2: And a good bench and excellent defense, right, Jimmy? You know, bonds and left we know about. Van Slyke was a great center fielder. Lynn could catch anything at second base. LeVire was a good defensive catcher. You caught the ball. That team caught the ball. In nineteen, that was an excellent defensive team. Thoughts on that? Go ahead. We, yeah, we did. We
0: did catch the ball good, and we had to because we didn't really have strikeout pitchers. Uh, Drayback really wasn't a strikeout pitcher. Uh, you know, Zane Smith wasn't a strikeout pitcher. He was a ground ball pitcher. So our env- our infield defense was really really important to that team, and, and of course they played great.
2: Now the year before, you did not have home field. Game seven was in Cincinnati. You started in ninety one. And you did have home field. Did you think that would be a big difference maker against Atlanta? What was your take on that?
0: Well, I thought it would be, and I thought that that's always a nice thing, you know. If you can ever win it at home, I think it's obviously the best thing that could possibly happen to you. But I've also I've also had a belief all my career that I think I think when you get to a game seven, Cincinnati was a five game series uh, in nineteen ninety, and I think that I think when you get to that final game at home, like in a World Series, so I think actually the pressure. Is on the home team. I really do. I I, I didn't mind playing on the road in, in Game Seven. I I didn't think that uh, I didn't think there was anything wrong with that. Uh, I always felt like that in a lot of cases that the pressure was on the home team because there's so much other activity. There's so many other things going on. You know, people looking for tickets, people calling their seats aren't right. They can, you know you got to have somebody handle all that stuff for you because it can drive the players crazy. So I think. There's actually a lot more going on. I think when you're at home, and when you're on the road, you're kind of at peace a little bit. You don't have all the all the distractions that you have at home.
2: And obviously, in '92, the Pirates lost to played the game seven in Atlanta compared to '91. Uh, did you uh, know that much about the Braves? I mean, they hadn't. They've been bad last to first. This was their first year. Uh, were you familiar with Atlanta? I mean, I know you knew about their pitchers. They were young pitchers. I'm sure you're Glavin, Smoltz, Avery. They were young. Did you have a feel of Atlanta? I mean, they were not a perennial champion at this point. Did you have a feel of them on the eve of that series? Let me hear.
0: Oh, yeah. Yeah, we, we had a good feel for the Braves. I don't think they, they weren't any strangers to us. We knew what they had, and we knew. It, uh, their pitching was, you know, their pitching was really good. And They had some guys, you know, like I said, Smoltz was just a dominant guy. Lavin was a terrific pitcher. You know, yeah, we had, we had a good feel for him. We just, uh, we just didn't close the deal in 92. You know, we Chico Lin missed a double play ball that he never missed all year. And we had missed a sign earlier in the game that would have given us an extra run, as it turned out. Nobody ever talked about that. But things like that, just freaky things happen from time to time. But going back to the series you're talking about in 91, it basically just boiled down to we came home with a 3-2 to two lead feeling really good about ourselves. And Avery and Smolts just totally shut us down.
2: They did. You know, Avery also, Jim, I'm sure you know this. You won game one in 91, 5-1. to one. You hit some home runs. Uh, Van Slyke hit one. Drebeck goes six innings walk. You brought him in. Did a great job. You got them in big trouble with Zane Smith in game two. A win there, you got a chance. I did not realize game two was also one nothing. So Avery beat you twice. Game two and game six on the road in one nothing encounters. Game two is as good that's, as game six. Give me some thoughts on that. Go ahead.
0: Well, that's exactly right. I mean, he was terrific in game two. I actually thought he was better in game six. I mean, I, I don't, that's one of the best games I've ever seen pitched. Uh, I mean, being in the manager's chair or being just a spectator, that's one of the greatest games I've ever seen pitched. Uh, game two was ex- excellent as well, like you say, but I thought game six was just a masterpiece. And I think we hit one loud foul home run. I think Van Slyke pulled the ball foul. That would have been a home run, but he got out in front of it just a little bit too much. And that was basically all the threatening we did.
2: Before we get to game six, Bonds had a rough offensive series, but you got to give him a little break. You know, they got Avery pitching and Glavin. He's got two lefties he's got to deal with. I'm looking here. He hit four, four for 27 with one double, 148. Did you try to get him snapped out of it? Did he press? What's your take on Bonds there in his second postseason? Let me hear.
0: Well, I think he pressed a little bit. I don't think there's any question about that. I think, you know, the expectations are high when you have a superstar player like that. And I think, you know, it, it takes a little time to cope with it. I think later on he's with the Giants, I think he actually had a very good World Series. And, you know, this was very, in his very early years, and sometimes that just catches up with everybody. I mean, you get to that point, and, you know, it's a little bit different. The stakes are a little bit bigger. You know, you know, you're going to see great pitching because they wouldn't be in the postseason if they weren't. They wouldn't be in the World Series without good pitching. So, you know, it, it shuts it down. And then I think you put a little extra pressure on yourself. And, uh, you know, that's that's what happens sometimes. Sometimes that, that, it catches up with you. And, uh, you know, you just don't produce the way you're capable of producing. But he wasn't the only one. You get beat one to nothing. It's not one guy that didn't do something. Basically, your whole lineup didn't do much.
2: Yeah, Van Slack was four for twenty five. Right, you go home, you're up three two. You won two out of three in Fulton County. You go home up three two. Now you know you know you I know you have to deal with Avery, but you had to feel pretty confident. You got two games in your ballpark to win a pennant, and you're pitching Drebeck and you're pitching Smiley, who had a big year. You had to feel pretty confident. What's your what do you recall about the the flight home after no, you won no, that game five? Go questions. ahead. Yep. Yeah.
0: No question about it. We, we came home, I felt absolutely terrific. I mean, uh, I think we all did. Uh, and, and certainly at the same time, nobody was taking anything for granted. I mean, we didn't think it was over or anything like that. But we did. We we came home feeling very confident, feeling like, you know, we're going to win this out in front of our home crowd. And uh, as it turned out, it just wasn't to be. But uh, you're right. We came home, Chris, with, with a lot of confidence. Our confidence was sky high. Lavalier had gotten a big hit in that game, uh, game five when we won down in Atlanta. I think we won three to two that game and he got a big hit and we came home. We were, we were sky high. We were ready to go. And, you know, I don't know if you can get too high for a game like that. I don't know if that had anything to do with it. Maybe the, you know, the anxiousness or whatever to kind of get it over with and win it. I really have no idea. But, you know, at the end of the day, when somebody pitches like Avery did, yeah, they can make it a long night for you.
2: And let's give Drayback credit in that game too, Jimmy. Went. He, you know, he gave up the run in the ninth inning when uh, Gant, you know, basically created a run by walking, stealing a base, and a two-out double by Olsen, the catcher. But Drayback was tremendous in that game, and you left him in there to pitch in the ninth, which was the right call at nothing, nothing. What do you recall in the late innings of that game? Zero, zero, one big hit, and you're going to win the pennant against Avery, and you're pitching Drabeck, who's terrific. Uh, any thoughts going through your head now, those last three or yeah, four innings what, there at game six? Just, uh, Go ahead.
0: Yeah, you're just really hoping for an opportunity. I mean, Doug was absolutely fantastic. I mean, there's no question about that. And like you said, there was certainly no reason to take him out of there. But you're just hoping that, you know, one guy, I'm sure they were hoping the same thing. One guy gets a big hit. Olsen got a big hit. Uh, We didn't get the big hit. They did. And that's usually the thing that, you know, in a game like that, that, that's that's the thing that turns it around. And that's the difference between winning and losing. So, you know, it was just, it was a great series, actually. And. We were kind of uncharacteristic. The next year in '92, when we we just didn't make a couple of plays that we normally made, we missed a sign. We would have scored an extra run. So things just didn't fall into place. But '91 was, I think, was our best team in Pittsburgh. And you know, like I said, uh, there was great baseball. Avery beat us one to nothing. It was a great game for people that like a good pitching matchup. Uh, you know, your your offense a lot of times in those big series. That's why I think sometimes it's a it's a unnamed guy kind of, kind of a little guy that gets a big hit. I remember Lemke was pretty good for the Braves in postseason. And sometimes it's not the big guys. There's so much pressure on those guys. I think sometimes there's somebody else that ends up getting eight, nine, ten hits in a postseason, you know. I think it happened with Bobby Richardson one time. So yep. that's just the way it goes. Sometimes it's the guys that, you know, you expect. you got the big guys, and all of a sudden they get shut down, you know. But once in a while for your team or the other team, it's some other guy, kind of some other unexpected guy that gets the big hits.
2: And Greg Olson had eight hits in that series and had a good series. That's right. All right, Game 7, Jim, they got three runs in the first inning off Smiley. I remember that Hunter hit a two-run homer, uh, not, uh, and Smoltz, of course, uh, that's a tough spot. So you lose Game 6, one nothing in the ninth, and before you get a chance to hit in the bottom of the first inning of Game 7, they put three on the board. That's tough to come from behind on, especially with Smoltz. First inning of Game 7 was a killer. Give me some thoughts on that. Yeah, that, was a, that
0: was a killer. Uh, that was a killer when Brian Hunter hit the big home run. That was that was that was kind of a killer for us. But we obviously still had all the innings to play yet. But we just, you know, like I said, Smoltz is the best big game pitcher I ever managed against. I don't know if he's the best big game pitcher ever, but he's the best I ever managed against. And you know, he just uh, that was just a confidence builder for him to go out there with that kind of lead. and and I think everybody, including our players, and everybody knew it was going to be an uphill battle. And Certainly nobody gave up, but everybody knew it was going to be an uphill battle, and obviously it was.
2: You, you know, you, you're, you're, you're a no-nonsense guy. You know, you don't always get sentimental. That team was a very prideful team. That had to be a rough—I know that in the next year you were phenomenal with the media, but that one had to be tough, too, dealing with the players and all the media after Game 7 at home and all the fans in Pittsburgh— How'd you handle that uh, on the aftermath well, of those two shutouts? Go ahead.
0: You know, you just do the best you can. And you know that you're the person in charge of the players on, field, on the field. And you want to be, you want to make sure you're totally professional because you want it to rub off on the players and you want them to understand how you handle things when things don't go exactly right. So you try to do the best you can. I mean, obviously a lot of emotion there because I was very, you know, close to, to the Pittsburgh people, the fans in Pittsburgh. I still live here. You know, that was a tough one. It's just one of the saddest things in my career that we didn't, that we didn't bring one to Pittsburgh, you know. But, uh, you know, it's just part of the business. I mean, and you can't, you know, you can't sit around and pout about it. You can't whine about it. You can't make excuses. You can't find somebody else to blame. You know, you stick your chest out, and you, <laughs> you take what you have coming, and you answer the questions respectfully, and, and you go about your business.
2: Did you know that you would lose Benia because he was a free agent? You know, the Pirates didn't have as much money to work with. You had Bonds for the one more year. Did you think that was going to be it for Benia as a Pirate when that series concluded?
0: Well, I did. And I knew for sure the next year Bonds was going to be gone. Uh, You know, they just couldn't maintain any kind of payroll at that time. A lot of people don't realize this. In 1986, when I took over the Pirates, our entire payroll was $10 million. And it got up into $34 million, I think, around that time. And I knew that the Pirates weren't going to be able to handle that. In fact, the president of the Pirates... After one we won in ninety we came home from St. Louis to celebrate and he didn't even come because he knew the end was gonna come. He knew that they weren't gonna be able to sustain any kind of payroll. So it was kind of a it kind of put a little tough light on it, but I, I I knew that. I knew what was coming. I knew we were gonna lose Bobby, I knew we were gonna lose Barry. I knew there'd probably be some trades. We traded Smiley later on. Uh, you know, so in spring training. So, you know, I knew that. You know, that that's all part of it. I mean that's that's just the way it is. You have to handle those things.
2: Everybody, you know, it's funny, Jim. Everybody, we know, everybody remembers Breen, who you managed in 90. People forget. Everybody remembers Breen in that incredible ninth inning the following year. This 91 series against Atlanta is almost overlooked in a lot of ways. This series is as good as the next one, but everybody remembers the 92, not as much 91. What's the case with that? Let me hear.
0: Yeah, well, I think it's because probably we had that two to nothing lead in the ninth inning. It was a little more dramatic in 92. In '91, really, when they got out to that lead on us with Smoltz going, we never really challenged them. So I think, as much of a letdown as it was, I think the next year, with going into the ninth with the, uh, you know, with the two to nothing lead, I, I think that's why that was a little bit more dramatic for the people of Pittsburgh. And I think the other part of that was the fact that Sid Bream, who was a former Pirate, was the guy that slid home with the winning run. So I think that the winning run, so I think that became more dramatic. You know, I think that's the reason that happened.
2: That was a wonderful Pirates team you had there, Jim, for three or four years. You had a great. It bo- it's too bad you didn't win one because you deserved it. The team deserved it, you oh. deserved it, and the city deserved it. Now, you got yours in Miami, but that franchise in that period deserved a championship. You would agree with that, correct?
0: I would. I would agree with that. We should have got gotten one for sure, and it was nobody's fault but our We have nobody to blame. And- uh, we just didn't get it done, and that, hey, that's the difference between winning and losing. I mean, you get to that big dance, you got to win it. You know, I've been to three of them, won one of them, and, uh, you know, it's not that easy. You know, you're one and two in the World Series. It's, it's, not, you know, it's not that easy to win one. Some of the greats, like Weaver and Herzog and them, Bobby Cox, won the World Series. It's just hard to do.
1: Now, remember,
2: 92, the Pirates are good, too. Benilla has gone, but the Pirates are an excellent team. They have a chance against the Braves again. They were down 3-1. They got back in the NLCS against Atlanta and had a lead going into the bottom of the ninth inning with Dreybeck in Atlanta in that seventh game. Jeback tired. Stan Belinda got squeezed by Randy Marsh. The famous Francisco Cabrera hit. Sid Breen scores the game-winning run. He's an next pirate And a crushing defeat for Leland, the Pirates, in the city of Pittsburgh. So Beni is gone after 91. They bounce back. But once Bonds leaves... The Giants after 92, you know they're in big trouble. They fall back into the basement, Pittsburgh does in the National League. Didn't have a winning season, believe it or not, after Bonds left 92 for 20 consecutive years. You know how it works with these small market teams, folks. You got a little window and you better capitalize before all these big stars move to bigger pastures. In this case, Pittsburgh lost Benilla, they lost Bonds. Drebeck went to Houston. You know, they had their chances in 90 with Cincinnati. Ended up winning a title. Had their chances in 91 with the Braves. At home, game six and seven, they lost. Had a chance game seven in the ninth with the lead in Atlanta in 92. Lost again. Benia leaves. Bonds leaves. It's what it is. Pittsburgh came up a little shy. A little shy. So here it is, 20-something years later, and they're still waiting in Pittsburgh for their next World Series appearance. 79 is a long, long time ago. For more episodes on baseball's greatest teams that never won a championship or to listen to previous seasons covering the history of Thanksgiving football and the NCAA tournament, download the SXM app, free for most subscribers. Download it today and search Digging Up the Past. You can do that
1: or subscribe to our feed wherever you get your podcasts. Digging Up the Past is part of the SiriusXM Podcast Network. The executive producer is Bill Zimmerman. The associate producers are Chris Tyler and Andrew Emmer. Sound design is by Matt Damro and Joey DeFazio. Andy King is the director of sports podcasting for Sirius XM. Special thanks to Sirius XM's senior vice president of sports programming and podcasting, Steve Cohen, vice president of sports programming, Eric Spitz, and Mad Dog Sports Radio program director, Steve Torrey.